This is Tales from the Pros, where business leaders and influencers share their struggles, successes, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Michael Giorgio. Hey everyone, this is Michael Giorgio, co-founder of Imagine Ovation, and welcome to Tales from the Pros. We have a very, very special guest here today with us. His name is Scott Wingo, serial entrepreneur, uh, founder of Channel Advisor. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him. Uh, they're located here in Raleigh, Cary, North Carolina. And he's also the CEO of Durham-based Spiffy. Scott, welcome. Thank you so much for being yeah, here. Yeah, really thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. It's, awesome. Uh, love talking startups, so looking forward to the <laughs> conversation. Let's talk about the grind, right? So <laughs> tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. How you? Uh, I know, obviously, we mentioned that you're the founder of Channel Advisor. So what motivated you to start to start Spiffy? Tell me a little bit about that story. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people say, so So Channel Advisor is an e-commerce software company. Mm -hmm. um, so we help retailers and brands sell on eBay, Amazon, and places like that. Uh, and then it has nothing to do with car washes. So uh, then uh, Spiffy is on-demand car wash and detail. Okay. So it's app-based. You use the app. You request a service. Um, so the, the steps that led to Spiffy in 2003, I invested in a physical car wash. Uh, and for those of... You know, a lot of people have seen Breaking Bad, and, yes. and it's used as a uh, you know a, a way of uh, funneling cash and for building crystal meth. That's not what I do. Uh, <laughs> it, I figured if I was going to do like a risky internet startup, the exact opposite of that was like a car wash. You know, a physical yeah. thing. And the way the way a car wash business works is pretty simple. You you get a loan on the land, and the car wash pays off the loan over time, and you end up owning the land and the car wash. So it cool. is a kind of a cash flow kind of a business. Super old school. So, it, uh, and I had a friend that wanted to operate it, so it was perfect for me. I could be the silent investor. Yeah. Uh, and then in 05, we built another car wash. So we have two car washes. So that's how I got in the car wash industry. Uh, and then kind of like what led to Spiffy was uh, first in 2008 at those car washes, we always did details. So you would come on a weekend and we'd say, hey, Michael, your car looks like it needs some extra care. Uh, you're an entrepreneur. You're really busy. So your car is pretty much destroyed. Um, we have a detail <laughs> option where we'll do the inside and the outside for $100 and, and bring it back to like new. Um, and in 2008, that business just disappeared with mm -hmm. the recession. And as we talked to busy professionals like yourself, what we found was... It wasn't the money. That would be your first instinct. Oh, people don't want to, they don't have $100 anymore. Yeah. It was the time. Um, and that's, it's interesting. In the world of e-commerce, we're still just 10 years later after the recession. There's a lot of interesting data that shows the recession dramatically changed uh, consumer behavior in the United States. Um, mm. And you can see it in the retail results. So half the U.S. went value-oriented. You know, they kind of said... The recession was scary. I want to save every penny going forward. And the other half went super convenience-oriented. And they kind of said, I, the recession made me realize my private time, you know, hanging with my kids or doing whatever yeah. I want to do is really valuable to me. Uh, and I am willing to outsource stuff in my life. Um, so, so what we did at Spiffy was we said, okay, well, what if we just got some vans and we went to customers instead of making them come to us? Um, it seems like an easy jump and we're entrepreneurial, but most car washers would never do that because it's really a land play. So we got two vans and we started doing mobile detailing. So that was kind okay. of another step towards Spiffy. Then I had a customer at Channel Advisor, um, and there, I've got tons of these stories. This, you know, there's this dude that was like 27 years old. 
Um, and he had started an eBay business in college and he grew it up to be like a $10 million eBay business, um, top line, wow. probably generating two or $3 million in profit. Uh, What's the business? Uh, I can't remember what it was called. It okay. was called college something. He just sold like collegiate stuff. Cool. Uh, and he called me one day and he said, you know, I'm winding down my business. I was like, Oh, what happened? Did you, what went wrong? He's like, Oh, it's fine. I just, I'm going to go work for this startup. And I was like, well, what startup could be, you know, make you get rid of this multi-million dollar business? He's like, it's called Uber. It's going to change the world. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, so he, he ran Uber New York and he okay. was like a very early Uber employee. Yeah. So uh, it's good that, uh, you know, he didn't take my advice because I would have advised him not to leave his profitable business, but he'll probably be a billionaire, I'd imagine, from, you know, the Uber, if Uber ever goes public. Uh, but anyway, so I was kind of pretty early on with Uber. This is back when they were just literally in two cities, New York and San Francisco, mm -hmm. doing black cars. Uh, so... So it didn't take rocket science that first time I used Uber to say, all right, we've got these mobile vans, you know, this. So first of all, as an e-commerce person, you know, um, you could already see the data that the Amazon app and the eBay app was where all the traffic was going. And I kind of said, well, mobile is the future. And then this kind of mobile services is really interesting. Yeah. Um, we didn't know to call it on demand at that point, but you know, mobile services is kind of how I thought about it. So we, we started thinking about how we could marry that to the car wash. So at Channel Advisor, we were doing an IPO, though, so I was pretty busy with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, 2012, 2013 with the Roadshow and the S1 and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so we really didn't get a chance to do much with Spiffy until 2014. But then we, uh, 2014, we, we started doing some experiments, and it turned out that, uh, you know, we can talk about it, but there was a lot of things we learned from those experiments that kind of took us in different directions. And then we found some really interesting things that let us really scale Spiffy up very quickly. That's cool. So a lot of your experience from Channel Advisor and running previous companies helped you with with starting up Spiffy, right? Yeah. That kind of, and you saw and you saw a need in the market for yeah, Spiffy absolutely. as well. Yeah. Or was it like you just hey, I mean, there's a lot of competition, but we're just going to be another competitor. Yeah, we. Yeah. I like to do so. Uh, I'm a, a at, at then you know I went to school for software engineering and. Um, you know, so the agile software development, it's pretty common yeah, now, agile, even, yep. you know, so, so even when I went to school, they were kind of looking at some of these manufacturing things that Toyota was doing and figuring out how could you apply it to software. And, you know, it, it's pretty common. Most people do this in their startups, but we, mm -hmm. you know, I use those agile techniques in the startup. So yep. the first thing we did at Spiffy is just put an app out there and see what it would happen. Uh, and uh, it was interesting because the big surprise for us at a physical car wash, it's a weekend, Friday, and and some evenings kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you, you usually actually close the car wash from like nine to noon and do do maintenance and stuff. So you almost during the day you have almost nobody. Like in the afternoon you'll get some stay at home moms or or you know folks kind of bringing the kids back from school. So um, yeah, but that's kind of like what the busy week part of the weekend is the of the week is the weekends. Um, at Spiffy we just put an app out there. Um, so we started a company. We put the app out there and we got our two vans that we already had and okay. branded them and we got two more vans just to see what would happen. Testing and, the market a little yep, bit. Yep. yep. So kind of a minimum viable product, yep. MVP. MVP, yep. And we really didn't sweat it too much. The app was like literally a you know, a five step, here's how to, you know, schedule, ask for a car wash. And then on the back end it would just send us an email. <laughs> cool. So, you know, and then we were like had post-it notes ready in case anyone used this thing. So the good news was people used it all the time and, and we really didn't have to promote it. So we knew we were kind of onto something. Um, the big surprise for us is everyone wants their car washed while they're at work at, at their office park. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's obvious because that's when you're most idle, right? There's this kind of, if you're an office dweller, like most of us are, there's this nine to five, Monday to Friday period of time when your mm -hmm. car is sitting there idle. You may go out to lunch a couple times a week, but other than that, you're 
your car sits there for eight hours. So every request we got, something like 80% of the requests we got in like the first week were for uh, you know what we call at work or when people are at their office. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, that, that's how it goes. And that was, you know, so all that was good news and just kind of, you know, make sure, that's why you do these MVPs to kind of figure this stuff out. Yep, yep. But then the bad news was, as we went to like Citrix over here and all these office parks <laughs> in the Research Triangle <laughs> Park, what we found is um, they don't allow detailing. And uh, so that was, it felt like game over, to be honest with you, because everyone mm. wants their car washed at work and you can't wash cars at work. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Um, my partner, who, uh, you know, is a good salesperson, um, you know, he kind of started to say, well, why is that? And it turns out there's these companies called property managers and they control the day-to-day activities of an office park. And they don't like mobile detailing for four reasons. We heard these over and over and over again. They would say, number one, the current mobile detailers are super sketchy. And we, you know, we, we run these kind of nice office spaces and we don't want these unvetted people just kind of wandering around. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, just to get in your building, there's like really good security, right? Yeah. Uh, then number two, their vans, uh, they, we kept hearing them called child abduction vans. You know, that they, the vans these, these folks use in the traditional mobile detailing world look super sketchy. So you have sketchy people in sketchy vans. Number three, they don't have insurance. So if they clip a car or hit a building or something like that, there's no coverage. Um, so there's a liability mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest one was actually environmental. Um, so all these buildings today, any building built in like the last 20 years, spends a lot of time and money being LEED certified, L-E-E-D. And there's different tiers of that. It goes like silver, gold, platinum. And a big part of that is not only the sustainability of the building from an energy perspective, but also water and runoff. Um, so what was happening to these mobile detailer guys when come in and they would very quickly do a service and leave and it would leave a chemical spill in the parking lot and uh, mm. the property managers were worried there's a clean water act and you, you can't do that um, and you know they were worried that the EPA would come and find them you know these fines can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars wow so so we kind of looked at those things and you know we said well what, what can we do so um, some of them were easy so like the um, the you know the employee and the van thing our vans don't look like traditional um, mobile detailing vans we'd come up with the penguin as part of our brand image um, so we have like, I saw some of the vans look cool I like them. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know so that that kind of is like a whole different kind of a vibe and we use this bright blue kind of a thing so it's not like a dirty white van with a window punched out um yep there's the penguin uh and then uh and then we so we employ all of our our folks so a lot of the shared economy uh, you know a lot of the on demand does 1099 so Mm -hmm. every uber or lyft driver you use is not employed by uber lyft they're their own little private contract yeah yeah and i think that's fine if your skill set is i need you to drive from point a to point b um we need people to go and make your car look like new and there's like a lot of intricacies of that and tools and technology Mm -hmm. that we use Mm -hmm. to do that and therefore we have to train them, we need to retrain them, we need to monitor them, we need to know their work hours, and you just can't do those kinds of things with 1099. And we need to yeah. run extensive background checks. So if someone's gonna be in a fancy building like you guys have here, you know, we, we can't, they can't have a record. Um, we also look at their driving record, um, and you can't do a lot of those checks with 1099. So that's how we solved the first two. Cool. The third one with insurance, we just went and got a giant insurance policy, so that was pretty easy. Uh, and then the hardest one was environmental. And ultimately what we ended up doing is we, we looked at there's some waterless solutions out there where you don't actually use water but uh, here in North Carolina our cars get pretty dirty um, they mm-hmm. get bugs tar all kinds of stuff on them uh, and that didn't work really well here um, and it ends up scratching the car so we wanted to stick with water 
And ultimately what we do is we wash every car on a mat. So we developed this mat that's like a little bathtub for your car. Cool. Um, so we take your car, we put it on the mat, and the mat sticks out like four feet around the edges of your car. Mm-hmm. So all the runoff hits that mat, and then we slurp it back up onto our truck, okay. and we reclaim that water. So there's you know, no water hits the pavement, so there's no environmental problem at all. Um, so once we did that, uh, then property managers kind of opened up, and it ends up that what was kind of our biggest hurdle is actually our biggest uh, strength because when we go to these office parks, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, you know, because you know we we come in and we launch and we become the an amenity part of the building, and uh, it just really gives us access to hundreds or thousands of people, whoever's in that building, um, for rel- relatively low cost mm-hmm. versus direct marketing, where you know it's pretty expensive to go direct to consumers these days with you know all the advertising vehicles are pretty expensive now nice awesome i love it cool cool and i've seen i've seen some of the cars around in the triangle meter how many of them do you have now so in the triangle we're up to 25 yeah 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 Yeah, we're we're at 25 in the triangle 25 and how many employees now uh so uh the corporate employee headcount is about 15 so we have this kind of employee and i think of it that's the platform that opens new cities yeah we're in five cities now so we're in raleigh charlotte atlanta uh, dallas and los angeles uh and uh, across all that if you look at all the technicians and everything 120 or so cool yeah so you guys expanded pretty quickly since 2014 right we did yeah yeah awesome yep so, Scott, did you ever see, I mean, even even before Channel Advisor, I mean, you were you were CEO of Channel Advisor for 12 or 13 years, is that right? Yep. Okay. So, before that, did you ever see, did you see yourself as an entrepreneur? Like, for me, I it was it was really a blessing in disguise. I never, I never really saw me as an entrepreneur kind of growing up. I had entrepreneurial, like, elements. Like, I was always a, you know, a workhorse and, uh, you know, you know, definitely grow, we talked about grinding a little bit earlier before you, when you came here. Um, and perseverance, things like that, but it was really a blessing in disguise for me. Was it like that for you? Or you just kind of, you're always entrepreneurial, you had ideas growing up, or? Yeah, I had, I had pretty early exposure to it. My dad was an entrepreneur, so he, he had worked for kind of the man for a while and uh, didn't really work well for others and then left and started his own business. Um, yeah. And he ultimately, he did computer consulting. So it's kind of funny. I'm from a little town in South Carolina. Uh, this is the early days of computing. So we had like a, we had a Vax, this like big refrigerator sized computer in my house. My friends would come <laughs> over and they'd be like, what? You know, it looked like NASA to them. Uh, it was kind of funny. They're like, wait, what kind of weird refrigerator is that? And I was like, it's a computer. And they're like, oh my God. Then they, you know, you really, they wanted to play video games, but you couldn't really yeah. play video games on those kind of computers. Uh, so, so, so I grew up, you know, with my dad being an entrepreneur. So I knew, I knew it was a grind because he worked like insane hours um, mm-hmm. and, you know, all the classic, we'd be on family vacations and he'd have a customer go sideways and have to go see them. Mm-hmm. So I knew the good and bad of entrepreneurship. So when I went to college, I thought I wanted to work for a big business, oddly enough, because I wanted to like have a more kind of stable kind of, you know, Work that's kind of how week. I was. Yep. Um, then I came, so I went to University of South Carolina. Um, so I'm a Gamecock, and then came here to NC State for to get a master's. Uh, it was during the recession, and I figured I'll ride that out and get a master's for a what year. What was it, NC State? Yeah, at nice. NC State. Cool. Yep. So I met a professor there, and um, his name's Dr. Miller. Uh, he's super entrepreneurial, and you know I had this kind of classic dilemma where I had a job offer from Motorola um, down in Austin, and then one from this startup in Connecticut that was a guy I had met before. Uh, and I went to my professor. I was kind of torn. The you know Motorola was interesting, and Austin was exciting. But you know one of the things that was a little depressing is you go on these interviews, and they're like, "Yeah, here's your career for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know if you work really hard, you, you start at a." Uh, you know, member technical staff one, MTS one, and you can get to 15 yes. you know, over 30 years. 
and they thought that was like part of their pitch and it was just kind of depressing to me you know it's kind of like this you know wow that's my whole life just laid out there for me <laughs> and uh uh, and then I had a, you know, an offer from the startup, and it was like, yeah, we don't even know what you're going to be working on. You'll be our first employee. It'll be super exciting. Um, so I went to my professor, and I said, I'm really concerned about, you know, what should I do? He said, well, do you have a mortgage? And I said, no. And he's like, do you have a car payment? And I said, no. I had a beat-up car that, you know, had like 150,000 miles, but I didn't have a payment. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, go try the startup, and if it doesn't work, you can always get that Motorola job. So that was good advice. So, so I did that, and then kind of the, you know, um, realized that uh, that was in Connecticut and I realized I love startups um, I don't love working for other folks and I don't love living in the northeast in the snow so moved back here and started my first company in 1995 and have been doing startups ever since that's pretty cool so it's almost like you consider yourself a little bit unemployable that's that's for me like once I started my business I was like man I can never ever work for anybody else yeah I just like you know you love to be hurt you love to be heard you love your creative you know you can you can be creative. You can add your own, you know, your own strategies. You can pretty much do whatever you want. And also, yeah. I think as an entrepreneur, you're really making a difference in your community. You're adding a lot of value. Not that other people don't, but I think you're becoming the, this, you know, or you were years ago before even Channel Advisor, you were becoming this business leader, um, especially after you started uh, Channel Advisor. So, yeah. yeah. Part of it is, uh, you know, being an engineer, I didn't have any formal business training. So a lot yeah. of it was just getting the confidence that I could do that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you hear these things like, the PL and the balance sheet and it sounds like this mystery math and then you dig into it and you're like well, I just you know I can do differential equations I think I can handle the the math on this thing <laughs> so so a lot of it was just kind of getting some exposure to that which was great at my first company but then mm-hmm. like you know but then they start to make these decisions like one of the decisions the first company I worked for made was they they were going to sue Microsoft and I was like you know we're a 20 person startup and mm-hmm. we have like literally no uh, you know, no budget for this, and we're gonna sue Microsoft. That's that's kind of crazy. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can edit. It. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. We'll stop. There you go. I'll edit it. <laughs> um, cool. No, that that's great. So, um, you know, I, I saw that you guys received, for, especially for Spiff, you guys received outside funding. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of tell me a little bit of the differences? So. Do you, I want to say, do you regret it, but do you feel like it would be, do you think it would, it would be a much harder if you didn't receive funding for Spiffy or you just grow organically? Yeah, uh, and I give a lot of startup people advice on this. It, it kind of, a, it's, it depends on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can bootstrap a business like you have, um, and that's a very fine thing to do. And, yeah. you know, like here in the Triangle, one of our most successful bootstrap stories is Bronto. You know, and it was, uh, Bronto, yep. you know, there's, yep. here's a couple guys, Joe and Chaz, that started and they grounded out for 20 years and they mm. sold the thing for, you know, uh, a really nice outcome, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, and didn't raise any outside capital. Um, as I've, and my first business was, was a, a bootstrap like that too. The, the challenge is, you know, at Spiffy, we, Kind of my aspirations as I've gone through different companies go up every time. So uh, I've always wanted to have a public company. So mm-hmm. we did that with Channel Advisor. Um, now you know I, I kind of some of my favorite brands are Starbucks, Amazon, things like that. And now I would love to be able to build a brand like that. Yeah. Um, to do something at that scale requires some help to get there. Yeah. So so I'm and kind quicker, of, a little yeah, bit quicker. Yeah, yep. and fast. And I'm I'm you know as I get older I'm less patient. Oddly <laughs> enough. Uh, so you know so I'm increasingly doing moonshots and it requires more more uh, support from external capital. 
Yeah. yeah. So, so for example, you know, uh, what's interesting is you think about most things and we could hop on a plane and we could throw a dart at a map in the United States for larger cities and we could go there and like, let's pick Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we went to Cincinnati and I said, let's go get a coffee, we know we could find a Starbucks. We may find a caribou. If we wanted a Jiffy loot, you, know, uh, you know, to change our oil, there's two options there. If we want, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, there's a Chipotle, like there's, we know, we can probably guarantee there's eight restaurants you and I could name that we could find. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what's interesting to me about car washes is it's one of the few white spaces out there. We, if we were in Cincinnati, we actually don't know what car wash we would find. Um, and, you know, I think that is our opportunity at Spiffy is to fill that white space. The reason mm-hmm. it doesn't exist is because the current car wash experience just kind of is bad. Yeah. Um, you know, and it and it's, you know, it's not something that you're kind of actively seeking out. And so I think by creating a new experience, a new way of doing it, and a new um, channel, um, we can create this new consumer brand. So so it's pretty high aspiration. You know, I would love to be in like 800 cities globally at some point. Wow. So, you know, so that's that's kind of why we, we are kind of, um, you know, we've already started with that mindset and mm-hmm. it requires external funding. And you got a lot of the, uh, there were they like angel investors or um, venture capitalists in, in Durham and Raleigh? Yeah, so fortunately, right. um, because I've had other successes, I was able to be the sole angel investor through that kind of experimental yep. period of 2014 up until the end of uh, 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, uh, and then uh, one of my investors in Channel Advisor was, um, it was called Southern Capital Ventures, and they have a new fund called Bull City Ventures. Yep, part so of that was an easy, you know, if you've, uh, you know, uh, if you've raised money from someone and made the money, then that's kind of one of the first phone calls. So that that they decided to lead the round, and then we got um, Idea Fund and a couple of angels in there, and a couple other folks that that I've known over the years. So do you think with getting investors, do you think it's a lot easier to get funding when you know them personally, or you think it's a lot about the pitch, a lot about the credibility of the business, the idea? Because I'm, they get they get so many ideas, right? I mean, you can't yeah. imagine how many ideas they get. Yeah, what's a, you know, a little this bit, is what's hardest about, about North Carolina. So, um, and it, it's hard everywhere. So there's this perception in North Carolina that you, if you're in the Bay Area, you just have any idea and it gets funded. Yeah. <laughs> and what what I think's happened is a lot of the seed, kind of the early stage funding, has just dried up, even nationally. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it has moved. So it's odd. There's more money in venture than there ever has been before, but because of that, these funds have gotten so big that they have to write really big checks. So then they they can't really seed something at five million dollars. Um, that doesn't make sense. A seed round is usually ten thousand to five hundred thousand, somewhere in there, to kind of like prove an idea. Um, mm-hmm. And that is really dried up in my experience. Now you have some angels kind of filling the role there and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, angels usually invest smaller amounts, right? Venture yeah, capital are larger. Yeah, ten to twenty, thirty k. Um, so there's this really weird thing that the VC, because there's so much money, they've moved up market essentially, and they'll. It's a lot easier to get. Um, B and C rounds. So, mm-hmm. you know, I need 10 million, 20, 30, 40, 50. There's a lot more money at that level. And, you know, what they're doing is they're minimizing their risk by um, looking for companies that are further along. So that's called growth capital. So they're growth looking capital. for companies that are at like 5 million, 10 million, 15 million run rate. Um, so it is a challenge to raise capital. And, you know, my <laughs> advice to most entrepreneurs is like yourself, if you had asked me, you know, two or three years ago, I would say, Grow the company, get it up to you know four or five million in revenue. Then mm-hmm. it's a much easier time to raise capital. Yeah, cool. The kind of the thing is they, they want to see number one like a proof of concept. They want to see that there's there's a need in the market. They want they want to make sure they're getting a, a return on investment. Yeah, right? absolutely. They want to make their money yeah. as quickly as possible. Yeah, uh, they don't minimize the risk, right? Yeah, cool. and the, you know these 
what these later rounds, you know, are so a series, a, a seed round is like prove the idea, and then an yep. A is let's put some scale behind it, and then B is let's put a lot of scale behind it, and C is even more scale kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you know, if, if you're just kind of at a napkin drawing or an idea, it, it's really hard. You need the space actually to go, go figure out who is my customer, how do I sell to them, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then once you do, then it's that's the best time to go get money because you can go and say. You know, your pitch is essentially, I know this works because of these reasons, and here's how we're going to scale, and you're going to get a pretty good ROI on your money because, you know, you're going to put in $2 million and we know it's going to generate $8 million mm -hmm. in revenue. Um, when you're super early, you can't really say that with authority. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I understand. Um, would, are you guys kind of looking for more funding in the future for Spiffy? Yeah, you know, our aspiration is to is pretty big, and every day we get into this and kind of, um, you know, what, what I like to do with our investors is say... Here's why we're raising the money, and here's what we want to experiment with, mm -hmm. and what we think is going to happen, and let's like keep track of that. Yeah. Um, so, for example, with our Series A, we we picked four things that were uh, areas we wanted to work on. So, new cities, and then growing existing cities. Okay. So, Raleigh is actually our smallest city, uh, but it's also from a population standpoint, but it's our biggest city from a revenue perspective because hmm. it's our oldest city. So, so one of our kind of questions we ask ourselves is how big can we get in a city? Um, and if Atlanta has eight million people and Raleigh. Has as a million, can Atlanta be? Should Atlanta should be eight times as big as Raleigh? Um, so, so existing cities and new cities are really important to us. Yeah. But then another thing is, you know, I kind of view car washing for us as like books was to Amazon. It's our entry into the consumer. It's something that's not not this huge mental hurdle for them to kind of be like, oh, I use this app to schedule a car wash. Um, but you know, right now we're touching like four thousand cars a month. So what we want to do uh -huh. is kind of get to this point I call car care as a service where every time we touch your car we add as much value as possible so we say Michael we washed your car and it looks great your tires the tread is at this level um, but we did notice you have a ding on your windshield uh, and we're going to be at this office park next week just like we're here after every Tuesday mm -hmm. would you like us to go ahead and get a partner to come in and, and deal with that for you um, so you know we want to kind of take entire car care kind of thing off of your to-do list for you um, in a very proactive, transparent way. Cool. So so the third thing we told our investors is we want to experiment with other services in addition to car wash. Um, so, uh, so that was number three. And then number four was we, we know that we have these kind of two paths to customers. We can go direct to them, um, mostly at home, and we can go through uh, when they where they work. But we've got a million ideas around, you know, should we be at airports, hospitals, apartment mm -hmm. buildings? What about country clubs? You know, if, you, if these folks are going to go out and golf for eight hours, does it make sense for them to get a spiffy while they're doing that? So we've been experimenting with different channel kind of concepts as well. Cool. That sounds good. Great information. <laughs> um, would you, so I know like before Spiff, or I mean, you're still founder, of, obviously, of Channel Advisor, but how, how different was it running such a large company, um, Channel Advisor now is how many employees? Uh, I think we just crossed 700. 700, yep. wow. Yep. Um, and compare that to running Spiffy, being CEO of Spiffy, how, what are the differences? Because, you know, Channel Advisor is a publicly traded company, right? And then Spiffy's... Private. So, yeah, yeah, kind of. What's the, what are the differences there? I mean, it must be was Channel Buzz just that much more difficult? You think just because it's larger? Yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, so it's interesting. Every company has a lot of common things, right? So you know, the as CEO and founder, your role is to is like a coach. So you're 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 recruiting mm -hmm. and getting talent and kind of creating a vision and pointing the company in there. So so there's a lot yeah. of commonality in those things. Yeah. Um, the things that are different are. 
you know, so Channel Advisor is a software company, so that enables you to, um, you know, so you spend a lot of time talking to customers and understanding what they need, and a service company is kind of a different kind of a beast. Totally different, yeah. Um, What's interesting about Spiffy is I think we can actually go faster than than Channel Advisor because you know there's theoretically no limit to how many cities we could open. You know I think this works in like you know we've identified our first 30 cities, um, so uh, so that's interesting. And then in the software as a service business, one of the things that's frustrating is especially when you get to kind of like this eight to ten million dollar level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the biggest lever you have for growing is adding more sales reps. So, yep. so it's January and, and you know, you're a 10 million company and you want to be a $15 million company. So you go and you hire like 30 sales reps. So, but that, you know, it looks good on Excel cause you put in 30 sales reps and then like the growth shows up in Excel. <laughs> <laughs> then you go and you're like, all right, we need to go hire 30 sales reps. So then you have to build an HR team mm-hmm. to do that. And then you have to interview to get to those 30 sales reps. You have to interview like 300 and, you know, so, and then by July you finally get number 30 and you're like disappointed it took so long and then you know it takes three to six months to train them and three to six months so so suddenly it's a year and a half later and now you start to see the impact from that um so that's one of the things that you know spent a lot of time at channel advisor how do we speed that up and how do you go faster um and spiffy is different we you know we have just a lot more levers we can pull and go faster yeah and, and I, I would imagine with with channel advisor there's probably just because it's a larger company there's probably a lot more red tape I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Just so, yeah. so in order for you guys, it, I mean, obviously it's an innovative company. It's a, you know, you guys have a SaaS product, e-commerce SaaS product, uh, but it would be, it, it's, I can imagine so just a lot harder to get approvals for innovation, just kind of moving forward than Spiffy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, the big kind of red tape moment is we went public and yeah. uh, there's a lot of good and bad about going public. So the good is you raise, it's a great way to raise capital. So we raised like a hundred million dollars wow. through uh, an initial public offering and a secondary. So that's good. Uh, the negative is when you go public, there's all these rules and regulations. So your accounting team and there's Sarbanes-Oxley mm-hmm. and all these things. And there's good reasons for these things to exist. Uh, but they add, you know, uh, so you immediately have to go out and hire, you know, 20 or 30 people to kind of deal with all this. And then the complexity around, you know, when I was public company CEO, I ended up spending like a big chunk of my time worrying about like the earnings script and like, you know, literally editing this document 60 times and having to put it through, le- you know, eight layers of legal. And that's yeah. where a lot of the red tape came in is yep. like how you talk about the company. Um, the good news was though we were still able to, we spent a lot of time worrying about this and we were still able to innovate a lot, you know, so that doesn't slow down the engineering team okay. as long as you kind of, you know, make sure you've built some firewalls there that they don't get caught up in all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So... All right. So it's really, so it really does contain a lot of the same elements in terms of running a business. Running a business is running a business. Running a company is running a company, right? Yeah. It's just that there's obviously there, there it's a service model versus you know Spiffy versus mm-hmm. a product model, which is Channel Advisor. So it's yeah. just kind of very, very different the way the ways you attack it and the ways you grow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, what's fun about Spiffy is it's kind of a hybrid. So um, we have our front end software for consumers. So we're always trying to yeah, think, you know, get the app as well. You, know, yeah. uh, you, you guys do a lot of mobile app development. Mm-hmm. So in the early days of Spiffy, it was like 18 taps to order a car wash once you had your everything set up. Now we've got it down to like five. And we're always mm-hmm. thinking, you know, could we get it down to one tap? You know, is there some, you know, some magical way we could do that? So we're always trying to think that. Increase user experience. Problem. Yep. 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 And then um, the back end is really complex. So whenever we make our customers' lives easier, we have to like, there has to be software on the back end mm-hmm. of that. So, so that's been really fun and a challenge of, you know, how do you route these vans? 
Um, and then I thought we'd spend a lot more time on that. There's a classic problem in computer science called the traveling salesman that, that you know, I thought we'd have to tackle. Uh, but it ends up being, when we're at these office parks, it ends up being more predictive analytics. Like, let's say we were at this office park and, you know, um, you about half our business is booked before and then half is day of, kind of walk-up kind of business or on-demand. Um, so kind of trying to predict consumer behavior and factor that into where you put your vans is really mm -hmm. interesting and we spend a lot of time on that now so, so there's still a lot of cool software kind of problems to solve which I like um, but then you know the service the operational kind of consideration is very different like you know um, I'm a big Starbucks fan so I could order this vanilla latte here in Berlin and uh, the only difference will be in Berlin Venti's a little smaller and you know it'll taste exactly the same I, I really <laughs> you know I always admired that but having tried to do the service business I admire it that much more you know so a uh, we have a service called a Spiffy and Shine. A Spiffy and Shine in LA should be the same as in Raleigh, as in Charlotte, and Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I think we're pretty good at that. We we we're obsessive about measuring consumer feedback on these mm -hmm. things, and we have like a four point eight rating across all this. But you know, we always see little pieces of data that say we're not quite there, and we can always do better. So so I have a lot of respect for how these companies are, are able to deliver consistency. That's, yeah, because the, the data allows you to adapt your marketing strategies. You need you need something there to tell you, yeah. hey Scott, this is not working. Man, yeah. like we need to change this. So yeah, it's you got to have that feedback. That's what loop. we use as well. Yeah. It's cool, cool. Uh, I know you're talking about problem solving earlier. Actually, um, that goes into the next question. So, for me, you know, we encounter so many different startups, um, and I feel like a lot of the startups that we've, uh, you know, just ones that request a quote have an Uber, Uber idea. Everyone has an Uber idea, right? Or Facebook yeah. or Twitter, whatever it may be. Um, everyone has the next Uber idea. But the thing is, is that it's not just about the idea. It's about we talked about grinding hard, working hard, um, and delivery execution. There's a lot that goes into into you know building a building a, a startup and uh, making it successful uh, into a company, into a larger company. But I think a huge element of that is overcoming obstacles and struggles. Um, can you tell me a little bit? Kind of what are the biggest challenges and struggles that you've had to that that you faced and that you you had to overcome? Yeah. Like what are some really big biggest struggles? Yeah, I I would say. Um... You know what? In the day's world, things are changing so fast. That's where most of these struggles come from. Is mm -hmm. you know you did something and it worked, and then two years later it has just randomly stopped working. So so we would hit, hit that at Channelvisor all the time. You know so in the early days we had uh, we did a lot of business with eBay, and eBay is great. They're still huge, but they hit a rough patch, and then you know suddenly we were anchored to this company that was having a rough patch. Mm -hmm. So so then you know we had to figure out what to do, and, and I always go back to I've never built a Facebook I'm not a Mark Zuckerberg so I'm, I'm kind of a singles and doubles kind of guy he's a clearly a home run I'm sure you've met him though <laughs> I have not uh -huh. no, uh, it's on my bucket list uh, and uh, you know so I always go back to the customer so, yeah. so whenever I hit those hard patches I, I hit the emergency break and I call a bunch of customers and I always have like a you know a list of 10 customers that I'm on a you know I could just pick up the phone and call and, and have a really good relationship mm -hmm. with. So, so that's what I always do. So to keep that example, so so you know I called a bunch of customers when we started to hit some rough patches in the early days of Channel Advisor, and you know what I kept hearing was they're like, well, you know, you guys work with Amazon some, but that they're really growing for us, and your software isn't as good there as it is on on eBay. So we made you know, so mm -hmm. um, you know we had made the wrong decision kind of thinking Amazon wouldn't be good at this marketplace they had built and our customers were kind of saying no they're actually it's pretty interesting to us so then we had to go and kind of reprioritize that and and you know ended up being that was 
relatively a good thing to do because uh, we got to road, ride Amazon's coattails for like 10 years after making that decision. So um, so for me, nice. all my breakthroughs have come from listening to customers. E- even at Spiffy, you know, just kind of talking to these property managers, talking to individual customers is, is really important. Um, so uh, an example there is I talked about we wanted to try another service. Yeah. We talked to customers and the things that we kept hearing that they wanted were um, fueling. So in the West Coast, fueling is really popular. So on-demand fueling, oddly mm-hmm. enough. <laughs> Some people people have a very binary reaction to this. They're like, that's great. I would use it all the time. And other people are like, our society is so lazy. We can't fill our cars. And, you know, I, I you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of older folks are like, well, that's when I get my candy bar and, you know, I can't take that off my plate. It's funny. <laughs> uh, so so we tried fueling and then we had all these regulatory issues like, you know, all these office park people are like, well, you have to get the fire chief of Wake County to sign off on this. And, mm. and we decided that that was just too much work. Uh, and, and whenever I hit government impediments, I, I tend to run away the other direction so uh so oil change we prioritize that and that, that's like on fire right now yeah um but we wouldn't have had those ideas if we didn't talk to customers cool so it's so some challenges i would say would be customer facing issues mm-hmm. um especially with some large clients at channel Vest, i'm sure um and also there would be internal you know internal problems you have to solve like so i think for me a big problem i see you're not problem but like a challenge in growing a company is managing growth, yep. scalability. So what for you building successful companies, how would you scale a business? Like what are the what are the what's the process to really scale and grow a company? Make sure you don't go out of business. Make sure because if you're gonna grow so much, you're gonna hire twenty people in a few months or thirty people, whatever it may be. How do you make sure that the documentation's in place, processes, things like that? So Yeah, it's uh it's non trivial and, and what you there's kind of a sad element to it. So, so part of it is in uh, the recruiting and retention of, of people. Mm-hmm. So the team that a lot of times takes you from zero to five million can't take you from five to 50 million. And mm-hmm. you know what works out best is if you can have an honest conversation. Like, so let's say you have a you know a, a VP of something, um, and like you probably have a creative VP or something, and you just kind of get to this point where you're like, wow, that you know they're they, they can't manage more people. They're kind of maxed out in what they can do. Yeah. If you can find a way for them to hire someone and then have them kind of be a director and have a VP, um, that works out really well. And, and you know you can keep that person in the company. A lot of times people can't get their head around that mm-hmm. and uh, they end up leaving the company. So those are some of the harder things you have to do at a people level as you scale up. Um, the, Find the right employees, delegating the work, making sure they can handle it. Yeah, and then realizing yeah. when they're in over their head as you're scaling. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that uh, it happens. <laughs> there's these natural inflection points where it happens. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, there's things you can do. So, you know, the thing I've learned is you really, it's, it's easy as the CEO to say, you know, kind of call it a, uh, you know, a, a war promotion. So a field, field promotion. So, you know, Mr. Individual Contributor, you did a great job. Now you manage eight people. And it's easy for you as CEO to say that. Um, and, but then, you know, this, this is typically people that have not managed a single person, much less eight people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where things really start to fall down as you grow really rapidly is, you know, you, you have these, these management is a skill. Um, it can be trained. So one of the things I've learned over the years is when you do do that, uh, you have to support it with some training. And as a startup person, you're always like, ah, training, who needs that? But, you know, I, I've kind of learned uh, through the, the years that if you don't kind of take that, 
that middle management layer that kind of grows from yeah. from rapid growth and and support it with a fair amount of training, um, then it will fall apart on you. Um, and then you know there is this kind of you know every business is different, so you have to really kind of figure out. Um, and what I uh, what I like to do is I like to kind of. I always keep like a little Excel file where I kind of projecting out things and trying to figure what are we trying to build. And I try to think, well, uh, you know, if the company is going to double, like let's say a hundred percent growth, mm-hmm. what happens to, um, the, the cogs component, you know, every business has a different cost of goods. Does that scale, um, faster than revenue? If that does, that's bad. Mm-hmm. How does it scale slower? Uh, and then, you know, if it's slower, is it going to grow 50%? And then the same for R and D G and A and sales and marketing. Most early businesses, sales and marketing is where you're going to be doing a lot of investing. Um, so usually sales and marketing grows as fast, if not faster than revenue. So then you kind of have to figure out if you're going to be bootstrapping, you know, if something's growing faster than revenue, something's got to grow slower. There becomes a mathematical reality in there. So I like to use that as kind of a framework to always kind of come back and say, all right, here's my plan for the next year. And then you can start to work down from there and say, okay, well, if sales and marketing is going to have to grow at 150%, then that's, I already have five people. So that means I need to hire at least five more. And then, so now I've got a team of 10 do I have two managers? Can the single manager do it? It, it? It's a good framework for starting to kind of peel the onion. So do you do you wait to hire? So before you hire an employee, do you wait for the sales to come in to make sure that you can afford to pay them, or do you hire them before? Do you, if you, if you think like based on a prediction or assumption, you're going to say, I think we're going to make five million next month. Let's hire twenty people, whatever it may be. Do you kind of go that way in terms of you you based on the assumptions? Uh, on the sales pipeline, you go and hire people, or do you actually wait for the sales to come in and then you hire? Yeah, you that's know? one of the I nice things. That's a big issue. Yeah, one of the good things about venture capital is you don't have to make that decision. Um, you you can take a little bit if there's a risk spectrum. You can be further out on it. Um, when you're bootstrapping, you know. When I guess I, we're talking more about yeah. bootstrapping. <laughs> when there I bootstrapped go, yeah. my first business, um, you know, absolutely, you know, no, you know, the answer was the sales kind of had to come in before okay. you could make that yeah. hire. The, you know, and then what I. What I learned is then I then what I learned is you can you can you can be a little more risky on the sales and marketing side because mm-hmm. it's more measurable and it's faster to correct. Okay. So like let's say the decision is should I hire two sales reps or not? I would encourage most people to go ahead and do the sales rep piece, but then wait for revenue to come in on the other parts of the company. So for you, it's probably like production and and you know engineering and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Development, yeah. And uh, and then definitely I. And until you're like 20 or 30 million, then I spend as little money on GNA as possible. So GNA would be like, you know, um, CFO and accounting. I, I try to like keep as junior of a kind of, you know, as low spend there as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's nice. There's these fractional CFO options now. So you can kind of have mm-hmm. some oversight there on, you know, like one day a week or something. So um, because, you know, no one... No one owned their market by having a great legal team or a great accounting team. Those are important functions, but you know, in, in mo- 99% of the software com- or 99% of the companies, uh, that's not going to win for you. Great sales and marketing, great product. So invest in those areas. And definitely, I found taking more risk on sales and marketing is, is usually works. And if it doesn't, it's correctable very quickly. So, for example, you hire these two sales reps. They don't work. Well, the good news is you, you didn't have to pay them very much because they didn't hit their their, their very, quota. Their quota. Yeah. <laughs> and the back, the other thing is you you know very quickly. Yeah. You know, so you get this feedback loop literally within three to six months. Um, whereas, I also le- I feel like there's yeah. less training with sales. Absolutely. Within yeah, the, the engineering development, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind absolutely. Of, yeah. Yeah. So. Oh. 
Um, and, and what would you, so based on you, I mean, you're a serial entrepreneur, you've started many successful companies, you've been doing it for, for many, many years. What tips would you give to future entrepreneurs, future startups? Compare, you know, compare, kind of give some tips on a, on a building a product company and building a service company. Yeah, and I, I kind of, I use this mind map um, of, it depends on what phase of growth they're in, um, and the advice would be different. Yeah. So I kind of use this level of, there's this Darwinistic soup that kind of is out there, um, and uh, until you get to kind of 10 people and a million dollars, the advice is really focus on your product, and, and they call it product market fit, you know. Okay. What's your product, who are you selling it to, mm-hmm. and can you start to get some repeatability there? Um, what I find a lot of companies that are below that level do is they don't focus enough. And as entrepreneurs, we tend to be ADD. Um, so so uh, I have to spend a lot of time on myself being like, you know, okay, I, and I, I use this mental map of I'm going to spend 80% of my time on the, the, the kind of, you know, the thing that, that I believe is going to be the most repeatable. And then I'll experiment 20% of the time. But if yeah. I don't, if I do like 10, 10, 10, I have 10 ideas, I'm kind of working them all, then you'll never move the ball forward. I meet a ton of entrepreneurs that are stuck in that 10, 10, 10 kind of a thing. You yeah. know, they're, they're kind of spreading their time across 10 things. Um, so, so focus in, Stay try focused. to find the one that can occupy 80 or 90% of your time that's going to be the home run and, and nibble around the edges and, and continue to experiment. But you got to put the bulk of your focus in something. Um, so, because I know, I know why you're saying that because you notice probably that a lot of startups they, they want to do so much. They're yeah. Like, oh, I want to do all this different, you know, d- different things. Yeah. It's going to stay niche, stay focused. Yeah. I, I meet these folks and, and they're, they're all smart and, and they're, they're good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are two people and they're like, this is our company that's going to be, you know, has the technology. And then we've started four other companies. And you're like, look, there's, there's two of you and you've yeah. got like five companies here. There's, <laughs> you know, and, you know, they're, they're just so excited about their idea. They've already got the financial idea and the healthcare idea and all that, which, which is great. And I like the vision for scaling that up. But, you know, when you're a two person company, you just, you can't do that. None yeah. of that stuff, you know, surely there's case studies that, that have made it out of that. Um, but you know, most of the company, most entrepreneurs I find that do that, they end up failing because yep. they, they've spread their effort too thin. Mm-hmm. So then once you get to a million, then it's like, then my advice is more along, you know, finding these, these things that scale. Um, one of my favorite books is called crossing the chasm and every company goes to this thing where you have this growth and then you hit this, like this point where it kind of like just disappears on you <laughs> and that's the <laughs> chasm. Uh, and usually again, what's happening is you're not focusing enough. Um, so, you know, just to pick on you, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're saying yes to every industry and to get over that next hump, you need to just like focus in on a certain industry yeah. and get a little more specific about your solution. Um, that's usually what helps you get through that is uh, again, they're kind of like, they're, they're saying yes to everything and it's gotten, um, gotten them to a million or 2 million. Mm-hmm. But then at, to get from one to 10, you actually have to say no. Um, and you have to figure out, all right, if you're going to say no, then what do we say? You can only say yes to one or two things and you're going to say no to everything else. What are those things that can get from one to 10 million? So that, that's usually the advice there. And then 10 million and up, um, a lot of it is this kind of allocation, like where should I put my money? Uh, how do I get to that next level? Um, okay. Uh, how do you reduce uh, every business, uh, you know, has cost to acquire customers and the lifetime value of the customers. Mm-hmm. So a lot of really drilling in on those and understanding them. A big part of that is churn. So, you know, are mm-hmm. we losing customers? Uh, so, so that's Increasing usually... Increasing customer retention. Yeah. Yeah. That's the 10 to 100 million is really 
figuring that out and then um, and then figuring out all right now that we've been focused from one to ten now we can actually expand our focus a little bit because we have the resources to do it and yep. that's that's usually kind of what I see in that scale mm-hmm. so you're saying as a smaller business or startup from, from startup to small then to middle market to large company so when you're when you're starting a company you really need to stay focused because you have limited money you have limited resources um, and you need to try to build that foundation of the of the business like building a house you need that foundation after that yep. you can kind of build you know mm-hmm. add on floors and all that so a- after you start to build your your company then you can kind of increase services increase you know employees and all that so it, it yeah. kind of expands like you said is that right yeah absolutely okay. yeah and I, I would use a factory metaphor so so a hundred million dollar company so channel advisor will do like 130 million this year and it's essentially a factory and it's just like stamping out customers and mm-hmm. making them successful um, in a very specific kind of industry and solution set um, so in the early days you have to like figure out what is my factory gonna be and if you if you open up like eight little factories doing different things there's no way that any one of them will be successful so you have to really yeah. kind of like figure it out and then you're you're constantly looking for this repeatability um, and you know meaning you know I can I call 10 customers and I get a win every time and that win is $30,000 and here's how I make them successful and keep them and grow them and and then you know then it's like all right how do you scale that up as quick as you can yeah no I see I see do do you feel like to be a successful entrepreneur you have to have certain you have to have certain characteristics so it's not you know you see, yeah, I'm sure you read, you know, read a lot. There's a lot of books that talk about oh, it's work ethic or it's perseverance, overcoming adversity, or it's having a good idea. What do you think? What are the strong? What are the most important characteristics to have to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, there's you know? a really good. Another one of my favorite books is on grit, and um, you know, uh, I like these books that kind of take a scientific approach. So mm-hmm. uh, another one of my favorite is Good to Great, where they look at all these I think companies I've heard of that one. and yep. what made them good versus great. Uh, and uh, grit is an important one. So the, the lady that does the grit book, she did all these studies of successful people, and she kind of defines what is grit. And um, you know, it it that definitely is this kind of. Um, I kind of uh, this is kind of weird. It's like being you're kind of like so you're stupid in that you're like (laughs) you you know most sane people would stop doing what you're doing you know there's the whole thing of like you know Steve Jobs talks about sanity yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. so and and like you know you know failing again and again and again you know you think you would be smart enough to stop doing that but but a lot of the you know as an entrepreneur you kind of have to just like have this kind of stubborn perseverance to be like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I failed the first five times, you know, number six is going to be the breakthrough. You're going to do whatever it takes to to make it. Yeah. There's no giving up. There's definitely Mm -hmm. part of that, but you know, there's another element. Every, every entrepreneur has to be a salesperson. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. You, you know, you meet some of these technical founders and uh, the ones that do really well tend to be able to have, you know, go talk to a customer, look them in the eye, you know, break out of that cubicle kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, I always talk to technical folks that they kind of have to build that skill set over time. Do you think it's easier to, ha- to have a successful startup now or is it harder? I, I mean, in some ways, like I was asking myself this question, in some ways I would think it's easier because there's more, probably more opportunity, like there's a lot more, uh, a lot more tools available. Yep. Um, and that would increase opportunity, but in a way there's, I mean, a lot of people have startups now. Everyone's kind of starting a company. Yeah. It's the new, the new thing. Entrepreneur is like the new keyword now. Yeah. So I would say it was, it's very saturated. So you think it's kind of a, a mix? What do you, where do you feel it's headed? I, I think it's easier because of a couple of factors. So um, in the world of software, the biggest one is cloud computing. Mm-hmm. So at Channel Advisor, we raised $90 million. 
over half of that went to servers. So we had to go buy servers and put them in a data the center. IT side, yep. Yeah, and now if I started ChannelVisor, I could, you know, I don't need that. I could just go do it on the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that has brought down in the software world the the hurdle to start a new company very dramatically. Um, the other thing is in the early days of my companies, you know, so uh, there were, there was a couple head things that were hard. I was like 25 with my first startup. I couldn't rent a car, um, and. You know, most people wouldn't take us seriously. Now, if you're a 25 year old yep. entrepreneur, you can get a meeting. And even even in my first company called Stingray, we would we would try to sell into like Goldman Sachs, and they would say, "Well, how big are you?" And we'd say, "We're we're 20 people." And they're like, "Oh, we don't work with people that small." But but now, so there was like this definitely like companies would not work with small companies. Mm-hmm. Now that's gone. Yeah. You know, it's almost a positive. You're like, oh, you guys are small. We love it. You know, IBM and these big guys. Are I like know so that slow. change. Yep. So, so a lot of that, you know, I, I think when I add all that up, <clears throat> having watched this for like, you know, 30 years, I think uh, it's gotten a lot easier, even though it's more competitive. I think that it's a lot easier, um, you know, if you have an idea that you can kind of like get into it and, and grind away at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and do you feel like what, so... What has made it easier for you guys? Like, what, explain to me the process of what's made it easier for you to start Spiffy, other than obviously, other than knowing venture capitalists and angel investors. What has have made it easier for you? You think it's the experience you have, or you think it's you think it's the opportunity at hand in in the U.S. Or you, what do you think's make made it much easier for you to start Spiffy? I would say it would be experience, right? Probably. Yeah, yeah. I'm at a point now where I kind of know the roadmap, right? Um, yeah. So. Uh, there's definitely uh, you know uh, wisdom to having done this three or four times that kind of says here's mm-hmm. how we're going to do it and what we're going to do. Um, you know another thing that's nice that makes it easier to do things is we have these platforms that didn't exist five or ten years ago. The iPhone is ten years old, and you, you know this you can put an app out and have access to hundreds of millions of people. And, yeah. You know in the early days of my first software company we were sending out floppies and DVDs and like you had to just like the delivery of what you were building was like a big part of what your company had to do. Yeah. And all that that's disappeared now there's the you know you've got this you know the ability to acquire customers and all that has gotten a lot easier um, yeah so yeah cool so just wrapping things up I always ask these last three questions in the simplest way you can explain it how do you define failure how do you define entrepreneurship and how do you define success all right uh, so failure uh, so you know failure is when you you have a you Depends on the context, I guess. Yes. <laughs> you know, so because so everyone defines it differently. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So for me, you know, ultimately failure is when you start a business and you, um, you know, it doesn't work. You know, so I guess there's a lot of negativity around failure. But you know, in Silicon Valley, one of the things that they do right is failure is. An, uh, you know, viewed as an opportunity to learn. Yes, and that's, so that's kind of how I would define failure. It's like you, you thought something was going to happen, it didn't. And the true failure is if you didn't learn from that. If mm-hmm. you learn from it, then I think it's a good failure. And you know, every startup is essentially a, a portfolio of little failures. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, just to go back to that first example, um, we failed. You know, like we put an app out, and everyone at Office Parks wanted it, and then mm-hmm. we couldn't sell at Office Parks. If we had just stopped there, then that was a failure. But we decided mm-hmm. we're going to learn from this and try to overcome it, and, and did. Um, so you know, the other thing I, uh, I talk a lot about to people is. You know, you should, it's fine to take risk in your startup, but they should each not be a risk the business kind of a thing. So yeah. if you're if you're constantly risking the business, then you're, you really haven't figured out the product market fit yet. Mm-hmm. You should kind of go back to that. So there's really a big difference between failure and giving up. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, <clears throat> entrepreneurship is just kind of having the, 
the guts to kind of go out there and be your own boss and do your own thing. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Grind hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, success is, you know, uh, it's different for everyone. It's, it's, you know, being able to navigate through that and, and uh, you know, get to the other side. And there can actually be failures in there and everything. But, you know, success is not giving up and, and keep grinding away at it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And um, where can people find you? Your website? Yep. Uh, Twitter, Facebook? Yeah, so our yep. website at Spiffy is getspiffy.com. Get Spiffy.com. Um, Channelvisors.com. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm on Twitter. That's probably the best way to follow me. So just Scott Wingo, S C O T, one T, uh, Wingo is my Twitter handle. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so uh, always happy to chat on there. Uh, and then I do a podcast, podcast every week yep. around e commerce. Um, so that's called cool. the Jason and Scott Show. So you can just Google Jason and Scott Show uh, and you'll, you'll find me on iTunes. Cool. Scott, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. It's like I said, it's an honor listening. I'm getting all this knowledge from you. Like this is this is amazing. I love it. But really appreciate it and thanks for the opportunity. Sure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Cool. I appreciate it. Love talking about startups. It's always fun. Good deal. Everyone, Michael Giorgio. This is Tales from the Pros. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Cool. That's it. Awesome. <laughs>